Just a quick word from our sponsor, Pattern Life. I am so excited to get the word out about Pattern because one thing I learned the hard way was disability insurance. For me, researching insurance got complicated, time-consuming, and for me, I just got overwhelmed and trusted that my employer had some type of disability insurance, but boy, was I wrong in terms of what those details entailed. Pattern is great because it's actually geared towards clinicians and doctors and has helped thousands of doctors find and understand the insurance they're buying. You just click on the link in the show notes. I did this the other day. It takes two minutes to write your info, request quotes to compare them, or schedule a quick 15-minute phone call and buy risk-free. So request your quote today at patternlife.com so you can use your time better, save money, and be prepared for the unknowns of the future. Don't make mistakes like me and be confident that your family and income are protected no matter what the future holds. And with that, let's get back into the episode. Hi, everyone. This episode on smoking cessation will count for CME credit this month with ACP. Yay. We'll link the exact URL in the show notes. So click on the link, answer three questions and get CME credit. It is an episode that is very practical, so we hope you enjoy it and be sure to share this with someone who could also benefit from this continuing means of education. And with that, cue the intro. This is Dr. Marty Freed, Dr. Shreya Trivedi, and Dr. Susan Marable. This is the Core IM Five Pearls podcast, bringing you high-yield evidence-based pearls. Today, we are discussing smoking cessation. And as you just heard, our contributing producer this month is Dr. Susan Maribel. She is from the NYU Brooklyn Residency Program. Very, very impressed by Susan. (laughs) Oh, thanks for having me, guys. It's great to be here. We actually sat down with two experts, Dr. Michael Fury. Hildale Professor of Medicine at the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and Public Health. I also chaired all three versions of the United States Public Health Service Clinical Practice Guidelines on Treating Tobacco Use and Dependence. And Dr. Scott Sherman. Professor of Population Health Medicine and Psychiatry at NYU Langone Health. And I see patients in primary care at the Veterans Administration. All right, let's get started with some questions on the pearls we'll be covering. Test yourself by pausing after each of the questions. And remember, the more you test yourself, the deeper your learning gains. Pearl 1, Introducing Smoking Cessation. How can we best set up our patients for success in quitting tobacco? Pearl 2, Nicotine Replacement Therapies. How do you counsel patients on the best use of nicotine replacement therapies and their side effects? And by the way, a heads up, you'll hear us abbreviate nicotine replacement therapies to NRTs from time to time. Pearl 3, Non-Nicotine Replacement Therapies. So outside of the nicotine replacement therapy, what are the other alternative options available to our patients to quit tobacco? Pearl 4, electronic cigarettes. Full disclosure, this was recorded a week before all the case reports of the vaping-associated lung injury started coming out. So for this one, ask yourself, what is the efficacy of e-cigarettes in helping patients quit smoking, and how do you counsel patients? And Pearl 5, the throwback pearl, Barrett's esophagus. What are the screening guidelines for Barrett's esophagus? All right, so let's start with a case. Mr. Quinton Segrets is a 57-year-old man with diabetes, hypertension, hyperlipidemia, a touch of COPD, and he's coming to you to establish care. 
When you get to that healthy habits part of your history, you learn that he has smoked for 35 years at approximately a one to two packs per day. It's at this point in the interview when I'm usually taking a deep breath, I look at the clock to see how much time before my next patient, and I really consider whether it's even worth it to travel down that road of smoking cessation. Yeah, part of me is like, all right, ain't nobody got time for this. You're already running 25 minutes behind. And then another part of me is like, ugh, smoking cessation is probably the most important thing I can help this man do. So I cave and travel down that road. Right. And traveling down the road is absolutely worth it. There are different communication models like motivational interviewing or the five A's. But the bottom line here is that whatever strategy you choose, the takeaways at brief assessments and brief advice do actually work. And also a fun fact, bringing up smoking actually increases patient satisfaction regardless of their ability to quit. So honestly, something that I've become acutely aware of in the last year of being a full-time primary care doc is that when I first meet a patient, I'm trying not to annoy them, right? Sounds like a good idea. (laughs) Yeah. And so I think to myself, I've met this guy 10 minutes ago, and now I'm supposed to lecture him on something that everybody knows that they should stop. But the data is pretty clear that patients not only expect their docs to address smoking, but in fact, they have a higher satisfaction with those who do, in fact, bring it up. All right. So now that we are concern-free about bringing it up, let's go back to Mr. Secrets. We bring it up. He's actually been considering quitting smoking since the time he got sick with pneumonia a few years ago. So that puts him in that contemplative bucket. But guys, time is ticking. So what's the highest yield things to address with him? I mean, let's, let's make this a game. What questions would you bet on to move him to the preparation stage? I definitely put my money on celebrating prior successes. And of course, the high fives that go along with that. (laughs) (laughs) I like to set up the combo with asking about prior attempts. For instance, I'd ask him, have you been able to quit before? And what worked for you in the past? Nice. I I see what you're doing there. I'm a high five or two in clinic, by the way. Um, But I see you kind of building up your patient's confidence. That's, That's cool. But to me, the game changer info with the limited time we have is really kind of understanding what triggers made them go back to smoking in their prior attempts. So Dr. Fiore reminds us about the very common and predictable pitfalls, unfortunately. Half of people who try to quit and relapse have their first puff of cigarette smoke with some alcohol in their bloodstream, and other smokers in the household are another big challenge. And to try to come up with ground rules that support your efforts to quit. Yep, and some of the toughest cases I've had have been patients who are quite motivated but unfortunately lived with other smokers in the household or had habits of smoking along with alcohol or with their morning coffee. I'm not sure there are any easy answers here, but at least we can try to make a plan on how to respond to those triggers or at least what to replace the habit with. It might go a little something like this. So before when you went out with friends to a bar and it was difficult for you, what might you do differently this time? try and resist the urge to tell them because this really needs to be, they need to come up with solutions that work for themselves. Amen. It's hard for us not to jump in there with solutions, but getting the patients to come up with uh, their own plan is always the best strategy. And really during that interview, I'm working bit by bit towards getting the patients to commit to setting a quit date. Exactly. But with a quit date, sometimes I find myself in clinic thinking, all right, should I be pushing this patient to quit abruptly, cold turkey, rip that band-aid off, or slowly taper down the amount of cigarettes to that quit date. Well, luckily, there is an app for that, Shreya. 
A study, well, kind of, but a study in the Annals of Internal Medicine randomized 700 smokers to either going cold turkey or to a two-week taper prior to specific quit date. And of course, the winner was, drumroll please, a higher likelihood of quitting in those who stopped abruptly, aka cold turkey. And to quote some numbers for you, at four weeks, 50% quit in the abrupt group versus 39% quit in the slow taper group. And that improvement was long-lasting. So at six months, the difference was still significant. 22% in the abrupt group versus 15.5% in the taper group. Nice. And it turns out that the patient's preferences regarding if they want to do a taper or abrupt quitting might actually matter. In that same study, they found that those who preferred gradual smoking cessation at baseline were actually less likely to quit regardless of what group that they were randomized to. Interesting. I mean, maybe their preference for gradual cessation might actually reflect a more ambivalent uh, attitude around quitting. And that actually might be an indicator to give more help for these patients. And there's an app for that too, Marty. Actually, that's where technology can really come in handy. <laughs> if they go to smokefree.gov, they can sign up for uh, to get text messages starting before their quit date and after their quit date. And that also doubles their chance of success. So it does what you don't need to do in your office. It gives them a lot of support to help them quit. And I often share the computer screen and my patient and I will actually fill out the form on smokefree.gov together. Or also I've had patients just text the word quit to 47848 in clinic. And I feel much better knowing that these patients are walking away with more support than the 20-minute clinic visit I had with them. All right. Yeah, I absolutely love that. One thing I mentioned up front is weight gain, because whether or not patients bring it up, um, it is often on my patients' minds. Well, one thing I always tell my patients who are considering quitting is uh, to be honest with them about the weight gain challenge. What we know is that the average patient who smokes cigarettes weighs between 5 and 10 pounds less than individuals who don't smoke. And it probably has to do with the effects of nicotine on metabolism, as well as the known appetite suppressive effects of nicotine itself. Thus, it's common, in fact, the rule rather than the exception, that when people quit smoking, they on average gain between 5 and 10 pounds. The one treatment that has been shown to mitigate the weight gain is uh, short-acting nicotine replacement therapy, including the mini lozenge. What a teaser for the next pearl on nicotine replacement therapy. But before we go there, let me try to wrap up this section. After asking about current smoking and assessing readiness to change, we highlighted three high-yield things to cover with patients who are contemplative. One, address past attempts and what has helped them quit before. Two, identify what their triggers were that led them back to smoking. Ask about things like other smokers in the house, alcohol use, as well as their reluctance about weight gain. And three, last but not least, try to nail down that quit date. All right, so turns out Mr. Seagrets, he's actually never had any prior attempts on quitting. So we don't know what, what things have helped him stay away from cigarettes in the past or what things triggered him to go back to smoking, but he does want to quit and quit abruptly. Uh, so yay. Um, and he wants to quit in a week. He's motivated, but he doesn't feel like he needs any medication assistance with it. 
I get a lot of patients who say, oh, doc, I don't want to use medicines. Um, and I point out to them, if you were going to the casino in Atlantic City or Las Vegas and I had something that would double your odds against the house, would you, would you use that? I'm like, of course. Well, why not do it here? Because tobacco companies have spent billions and billions of dollars to make this product as addictive as possible. Why not give yourself every bit of help you can? All right. So let's delve into the five types of nicotine replacement therapies. First is the patch. Then there's also the lozenge, the gum, the inhaler, and the nasal spray. But spoiler alert, you guys, all of these medications can help people quit. Your best bet is just to go with whatever your patient is willing to try. After all, the most important thing really here is to prescribe a long-acting and a short-acting nicotine replacement. I like to teach that really what we're doing is the basal bolus thing that we do with insulin, but with NRT. Nice. So this combination of the nicotine patch worn round the clock to give you a baseline degree of nicotine to blunt the withdrawal symptoms that you will experience, along with the nicotine mini lozenge. Um, is the most effective um, nicotine replacement approach to helping our patients to quit. And just how effective? Well, looks like the combination or the basal bolus NRT that Susan likes to teach has about 25% higher quit rates with the combination NRT than the single nicotine replacement therapy. That's pretty solid. All right, so let's tackle the nicotine patch first. The dosing options are 21, 14, and 7 milligrams. But I've been pretty arbitrary in selecting the different doses for different patients. Kind of like, that guy over there, more of a 21 guy, but this lady, she's kind of like a 7 milligram kind of gal. (laughs) (laughs) No, no. bad Marty. (laughs) I've actually seen people just order whatever is easiest to click on their EMR. But to dose the patch correctly, you really should know how many cigarettes your patient is smoking every day. If they're smoking more than 10 or half a pack, then I'd start with the highest dose, the 21 milligram patch. If it's less than 10 cigarettes, I'd start with the 14. And actually, if they smoke less than 5 cigarettes daily, I would avoid the patch altogether and maybe use the short-acting NRT options. Yeah, and feel free to just go to the Coram podcast website and look at the show notes or what I always do is just take a screenshot of the awesome infographic. All the dosing options will be there. But with that being said... Is there anything else we should be reviewing with our patients when prescribing the nicotine patch? For sure, Shreya. I think it's actually very important to tell your patients that there can be some skin irritation associated with this. So try to apply it to different areas of their body every day. So speaking of skin irritation, what are the side effects of the nicotine patch? I would definitely tell your patients about the possibility of vivid dreams, which happens in about 20% of patients. And for most of them, it's not uh, not nearly enough to get them to stop using it. They just are surprised. So it helps to warn them ahead of time that uh, if it really bothers them, they can take the nicotine patch off at bedtime and put a new one on in the morning. They'll have a bit more cravings in the morning, but they won't have the vivid dreams. And I do remember one patient I was talking to who was in a drug treatment program, had been using drugs all his life. And when I counseled him about it and said, uh, Vivid Dreams, I know, I love those things. I can't wait to get on these again. (laughs) It was not the answer I anticipated, but whatever worked for him. Yeah, not sure I love using hallucinations as leverage to quit, but listen, whatever works for our patients, right? The next up is the mini lozenge. This was something I knew absolutely nothing about before speaking with Dr. Fiore, and it turns out to be a really effective option, especially for those smoking less than five cigarettes per day, right? This is that bolus dosing. 
He thought it was really important that we emphasize this new nicotine lozenge, which is called the mini lozenge. In terms of um, an individual who smokes less than five cigarettes per day, we don't use the nicotine patch. We exclusively use the nicotine um, lozenge, the mini lozenge. And I want to emphasize the importance of prescribing the mini lozenge. The reason for that is um, it's much more palatable for the patient than the original lozenges, which are large, chalky, and cause more gastric distress. The mini lozenge um, is more likely to dissolve in the mouth. It achieves um, blood levels of nicotine much more rapidly. Who thought that there would be such major developments in the nicotine lozenge world? Yes, this was like when they started selling pretzels with the hummus next to it and just uh, <laughs> oh, completely no. revolutionized the way I snack. Oh, oh my goodness. Oh, Marty, I guess that's kind it of the same the pretzels thing. with the hummus. <laughs> I hope that's what, what our patients feel with the mini lozenges versus the other ones. Yes. But the trick to dosing the mini lozenge is that you also need to know a bit more about your patient's smoking habits. So particularly, this is, you need to know when their first cigarette of the day is. Many of our patients actually get up in the middle of the night to smoke cigarettes. And if they're smoking a cigarette within 30 minutes of awakening, they're telling us they're highly nicotine dependent and probably need more nicotine replacement therapy. Exactly. So if they're smoking within 30 minutes of waking up, the appropriate dose of the mini lozenge is four milligrams. Otherwise, it's two milligrams. Hmm. I definitely have been asking my patients about their first cigarette. We'll add that to the list of questions from Pro One. What about side effects, Susan? They're actually pretty minimal with the mini lozenges, but the key here is to make sure that your patients are not actually chewing the lozenge. You really just want them to place it in their mouth and let it dissolve. And also tell them that they can use up to 20 mini lozenges a day. Ah, interesting. All right, so moving on to nicotine chewing gum then. Perhaps the most incorrectly used medication we offer in general medicine. Oh, absolutely. I think contrary to its name, the key is to chew the gum as infrequently as possible. Yeah, I don't know why we just why we don't just change the name from nicotine gum to like nicotine cheek parker or nicotine something. You guys probably can think of more creative names than me. <laughs> Not the same ring, I guess. <laughs> Well, this is actually pretty important because the nicotine is absorbed through the buccal mucosa, so you actually want to park it between your cheek and teeth until the taste is completely lost. And at that time, then you re-chew, rev up on oral saliva again, and repark. So I actually make the analogy to chewing tobacco most frequently because it's a visual that almost all of my patients can relate to. And avoiding swallowing is super important because that big dose of nicotine in your gut will actually cause the main side effect of nicotine gum, which is GI irritation. But how frequently should we be dosing the nicotine gum during the day? Actually, very, very frequently. Almost every one to two hours, but also whenever a patient has an urge to smoke. They can actually use up to 24 pieces a day, which at first I thought was a bit excessive, but Dr. Sherman actually points out this common pitfall. Most people tend to wait until they're getting a craving, and that's too long. To really get the most effect, you should be doing it every hour or two uh, so that even before you get the cravings. Exactly. As my patient once humbly told me, 
It takes less than a minute to light a cigarette, but definitely more than a few minutes for the NRT to kick in and after a craving. So my takeaway is to coach patients to stay ahead of their cravings. Absolutely. And especially because you have to tell them to try and not have soda, coffee, or alcohol with their NRT. Really, nicotine needs an alkaline environment in order to be absorbed well, which is kind of pretty difficult to do if you're parking gum in your cheek every one to two hours for at least 20 minutes. Nice. All right, so the gum and the lozenges are similar in dosing and the frequency, but why might we use the lozenges over the gum? The gum sticks to dentures, so you need to make sure they don't have dentures because that will not endear them to you if you've ruined their dentures by having them use the gum. Ah, okay. So this has been a beast of a pearl already, but we should round out the NRT discussion with the least often used modalities. That's the nicotine nasal spray and the inhaler. It's actually least used because it causes nasal and throat irritation, which many patients find, you know, kind of irritating. <laughs> but a bonus is that it increases nicotine levels faster than any other NRT. So really, if they feel a craving coming on, this would not be such a bad option. Right. And last but not least, we have the nicotine inhalers. And this really is to meant to mimic that hand-to-mouth ritual that's often so hard to shake. The interesting thing about the inhaler is that it's actually designed to be absorbed through the buccal mucosa as well. So basically, you're telling patients to take a puff and then keep that smoke in their mouth. So basically, puff, but don't inhale. Anyway, we got to wrap up this section. So the best practice is, is to combine nicotine patch with another short-acting therapy. Right. Think of that basal bolus deal. Yeah. So either um, the lozenge, the gum, the spray, or the inhaler are all the short-acting therapies. The side effects the prep patients are on is that vivid dreams and skin irritation with the patch. So change up the area, you know, every day. With the lozenge and the gum, it's important to remember that it's absorbed through the cheek. And the dose is also depends on when you, uh, the patient's first cigarette of the day is. So four milligrams if your patient smokes within 30 minutes of waking. Wait, guys, what about Mr. Secrets? Did he finally quit smoking? Right. So we set a quit date. We gave him the right dose of patch. We gave him lozenge. But he unfortunately had a really stressful day at work and needed a cigarette break. So he comes back a couple weeks later. We talked to him some more. He's still motivated, wants to give it another shot. Q. Verenicline, a.k.a. Chantix. This medication just about triples your odds of quitting when you compare it to placebo. So Chantix is a non-nicotine pill. It was built specifically to help patients to quit smoking. And it works at the site of nicotine addiction in the brain by both binding to nicotine receptors, thereby blocking the reinforcing effects of nicotine that come in via a cigarette, but also by mimicking nicotine and causing the release of dopamine and other neuroreceptors that mimic the effects of nicotine on the brain. So it's both a nicotine agonist and antagonist. And understanding that pathophys may be a good way to get our patients to actually believe in the medication. Basically, veronicline is going to trick your brain into thinking you just had a cigarette, making you feel satisfied, decreasing cravings, and at the same time, block that reinforcing reward pathway, actually making cigarettes less enjoyable for you. Exactly. And that latter action, that nicotine blocking ability, is really what separates Verenicline from NRT. So what about the risks or side effects we should be aware of with Verenicline? 
Really two major ones, especially nausea and, of course, vivid dreams. Actually, about a third of patients get nausea and that kind of gets better with time on its own, but I do advise them to take it with food or a glass of water. About 20% will also experience insomnia or vivid dreams, and that's because varenicline acts as a partial agonist at the nicotine receptor. The workaround for the sleep disturbances is taking that second dose with dinner instead of actually taking it before bed. Big fan of workarounds. I hate when I give patients something that will mess with their sleep. So thanks for that, Susan. But guys, we haven't actually talked about how to start patients on varenicline. You begin taking it one week before the quit date, and you work up a dose, um, and it's prepackaged this way to 0.5 milligrams per day times three days to 0.5 milligrams per day BID times four days. That takes you through the first seven days, and on day eight, the patient totally quits, not even a single puff, and they increase their dose to one milligram um, BID each day. And you continue that for three to six months. All right, sounds easy enough. As Dr. Fiore mentioned, there are varenicline starter packs, which walk patients through the dose increase over the first week in a pretty sweet blue and green blister pack. I am so impressed and concerned that you know the color of the patient, <laughs> of the medications. Google is an amazing tool, Shreya. Okay. Uh, and please learn from me. So if and when your patient asks for a refill, make sure to order just that one milligram twice daily instead of the starter pack again. Oh, <sighs> I see why you know the Google. Yeah. Not going to lie, Shreya, the learning curve as a first year attending rivals that of intern year. It gets better. It gets better. Speaking of getting better, Varenicline had a tough start, but things have cleared up for it now. Well, that's true. Varenicline did have a bad name, which for us in medicine means that black box warning. During its post-marketing surveillance period, there was some disturbing trend of psychiatric issues, particularly suicide and suicidal ideation. Oh yeah, that's right. I do remember being taught at one point to screen for suicidal ideation before starting Varenicline. Yeah, I actually had a patient recently ask me about this. She had heard about the, quote, mental health concerns. So I actually told her about the Eagle study, which randomized 2,000 people to either varenicline, bupropion, which we'll get to in a minute, nicotine patch, or placebo. And half of this group had some stable psychiatric condition. The study found no difference in psychiatric adverse effects among the different groups, and so the black box warning was actually removed in 2016. First of all, I love that you're talking to your patients about RCTs. Uh, second, I do hope it eased your concerns. Just curious, though, in that Eagle study, how effective was varenicline compared to the other smoking cessation options? Super effective. Varenicline definitely won the day there. It outperformed both bupropion and the nicotine patch with an abstinence rate of 33% after 12 weeks and 21% after 24 weeks. Ah, nothing like that double-blind, placebo-controlled RCT to vindicate a dubious checkered past. And those abstinence rates go up even more if you add a combination NRT to varenicline. Some experts even advocate just starting patients right off the bat with combination NRT and varenicline. Yeah, that's interesting to know the different practice patterns. All right, moving on though in our non-NRT farm section, let's go to the other bup, buprenorphine. Be appropriate! Nope. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> Can we just leave that? Yes. Be appropriate! <laughs> Reading is so hard at 10 p.m. at night. We're almost at 11, Trey. This is a record for you. 
All right. So, Susan, tell me about bupropion. Yep. The classic teaching is that sustained release bupropion is another good option, especially if your patients have another reason to start this medication, like depressed mood. Nice. And so, how do you start bupropion? Is it similar to veronicline, starting one week before the quit date? Yep. Yep. You start with one 150 milligram tablet for the first three days and then ramp up to 150 twice daily, starting on day four. And what are the important side effects for bupropion that our listeners should be aware of? Oh my God, seizures. No, not really. It does not cause seizures, I promise, (laughs) but it can lower the seizure threshold. And so it's contraindicated in patients who have history of seizures. I give your patients a heads up too that about 30% of them can also experience some insomnia and dry mouth. Anxiety is the one that I see the most, maybe in 15% of people. It makes, it taking it makes them anxious. Um, again, in one study I did, only 5 or 10% said it made them anxious enough to actually switch treatment or stop the drug. Good to know. So let's recap the non-NRT therapies for smoking cessation. With Varenicline, the takeaway here is it's one of the more efficacious smoking cessation options, especially when used with the nicotine patch and short-acting NRT. And despite the early reports, it is actually safe in patients who've had a history of psychiatric issues. In terms of bupropion, it's important to be cautious in patients with a history of seizures or on medications that lower the seizure threshold. And best practices for both these medications is to start one week before the quit date. All right. So at this point, we've covered the traditional medical therapies for smoking cessation. But let's get a little provocative here. A little risque. Our patient, that's right, <laughs> our patient, Mr. Seagritz, he asks you about your thoughts on vaping. Ah, so Mr. Seagritz wants to become Mr. Egritz. Nice. <laughs> I'm so, really proud of that one. <laughs> I definitely address e-cigarettes at least once a week in my clinic. Um, there are a few topics in public health over the last year or two that have been in the news more than e-cigarettes. Um, and the reason for that is that they represent really a revolution in changes in terms of the way um, people deal with nicotine in our society. So first, what are they? They are basically a system to deliver to the individual nicotine with water and a few other chemicals without the preponderance of chemicals that result from burning a cigarette. So as Shreya mentioned in the intro, we recorded this literally a week before the case reports of vaping-associated lung injury started coming out. Right. And we went back and forth with our peer reviewers of how exactly to address it. And We think it may be too early to make recommendations from case reports as the investigations are still ongoing. And keeping in mind, these case reports are mostly in adolescents vaping with THC. We do know that the CDC is advising to avoid all street-made vaping products. And we should also report all cases of new pulmonary disease in the setting of any type of e-cigarette or vaping use. We hope to record a separate, short episode once there's a little bit more data and stronger recommendations for adults who are using e-cigarettes. Right. So to pivot to the efficacy data that we do have, New England Journal did a really well done RCT back in 2016, where they randomized about 900 patients to either e-cigarettes or nicotine replacement therapy. And they either gave them an e-cigarette starter packet or literally any NRT of their choice, followed them for about a year. And guess what happened? 
those in the e-cigarette group were almost twice as likely to be abstinent at one year compared to the NRT group. Quit rates were 18% versus 9.9%. Yes, two thumbs up on how pragmatic that study was. I love how they let the control group choose which NRT modality because it was a great way to compare the decisions that I ask my patients to make in clinic all the time. The first is if the patient is willing to make a quit attempt, use the medications that have been shown to be safe and effective by the FDA. We have a lot of history with them, and there are lots of reasons why they should be our first approach. Okay, so that kind of makes sense. We've spent this entire episode talking about the seven FDA-approved therapies, right? Five NRTs and two medicines with really good long-term safety data. The bottom line is we should probably push these options first. Yeah, and then there's a whole other group of people who think, you know what? The higher dose of nicotine that they're going to get in e-cigarettes probably is going to set them up for higher quit rates. But if the patient says to us, I really want to try e-cigarettes or I've used those and they haven't been helpful to me, some key additional recommendations need to be made to the patient who's making this decision. First, upon beginning a quit attempt, they should totally stop combustible tobacco use because one of the greatest risks of e-cigarette uses for adults is what's called dual use, using e-cigarettes part of the time and combustibles the rest of the time. The majority of Americans who use e-cigarettes are dual users not quitters of combustible tobacco use. Right. So if you're going to vape, then vape. Don't expose yourself to both the known evils of smoking cigarettes and the great unknown of e-cigarettes. The second important advice that I always give patients who make a decision to use e-cigarettes to help them to quit is to use it for a finite period of time rather than to be an e-cigarette user for the rest of their lives. Yeah, I just love this. First set a date to quit smoking cigarettes and transition to e-cigarettes, and then set a quit date to stop all nicotine. Quit dates on quit dates on quit dates. (laughs) Mark those Google calendars. For sure. The importance of setting up your patient to eventually quit e-cigarettes was actually noted in an accompanying editorial of that same New England Journal of Medicine paper. It showed that after one year, 80% of patients in the e-cigarette group were actually still vaping, while only 9% in the NRT group we're still using NRT. That's a huge difference. That is a ton of people still on the vape. All right, so a few big takeaways from the e-cigarette pearl. First, I I do think this recent outbreak of vaping-associated lung injury does affect that shared decision-making conversation that we're having with our patients. We should encourage the seven types of FDA-approved cessation therapies first, but if your patient prefers e-cigarettes, they really should abstain from both using combustible cigarettes and e-cigarettes. And it's also really important to discuss clear duration of treatment and an off-ramp for stopping e-cigarette use. And with that, we will give the mic to Dr. Scott Sherman doing his recap and adding his own insights to these pearls. So let's go through these pearls. Uh, And I'll give you, this is my opinion based on teaching about this, doing research on it, and uh, seeing my own patients and what worked for them. How can we best set up our patients for success in quitting smoking? You don't need to spend a lot of time on the history here. It's really someone in your office should have been screening for tobacco use so that you know which of your patients smoke and you can then spend your time addressing it. The big question, number one question I ask is, are you interested in quitting smoking? If they're not, then you go down the not interested in quitting now pathway. And if they are interested, which is about two-thirds of smokers, then you 
can I immediately go from there into, well, that's great. Quitting smoking is the best thing you could do for your health. Can I get you to pick some day in the next month on which you want to quit smoking? What that does by getting them to set a quit date is you've moved them from the contemplation stage where they're interested in quitting to the preparation stage where they're then coming up with a plan. If they do agree and they set a quit date, I, the only questions I really ask are how much are you smoking? Because that might affect my medication dosing. And when you tried to quit before, what was difficult for you? Because whatever was difficult for them is probably going to be difficult again. And you can spend perhaps a minute or half a minute asking them to think about, well, what might you do differently this time around? Because the same situation is likely to come up. But I spend the most, I probably spend three minutes counseling people about quitting smoking and two thirds of that is on medications. So let's move into medications. Pearl number two was nicotine replacement therapies. I get everything I need from the patch, the gum, and the lozenge. I rarely use uh, the nasal spray or inhaler with my patients, so I'm just going to focus on the first three. Uh, patches come in three strengths, 21, 14, and 7. And I start almost everybody except the really lighter smokers on 21. There's no science at all about ideal tapering strategy. So whether you do a month, a month, a month at different strengths or something at the opposite end and just do 21 milligrams and then stop completely, it's all equally good. Whatever you and they work out is fine. And if you need to go an extra month or two, that's also fine. The main side effect from the nicotine patches is two of them. There's irritation uh, where you're wearing the patch and that can be Minute diminish somewhat by moving the patch around from day to day. And the other one that I do mention to patients is vivid dreams or nightmares. Maybe 20, 30, 40% of my patients get those, but it's seldom enough to make them want to change therapy. By pointing it out ahead of time, then when they get it, like, oh yeah, I had that. If they're really bothersome, they can take the patch off at bedtime and put it on a new one on in the morning. That way they won't get the vivid dreams or nightmares, but they'll get a little bit more craving when they wake up. The gum is probably the hardest of those three over-the-counter nicotine replacement forms to use because you really have to do it right. This is not chewing gum. Uh, you, The patient would chew on it till it gets a bit peppery and then park it between their teeth and their gums. That way it gets absorbed through the buccal mucosa. If they continue to chew on it the whole time, all that nicotine goes into their stomach, and that's part of what's responsible for the GI upset. The nicotine lozenge is very easy and straightforward to use. I actually very seldom have get any side effects from people. With both the gum and the lozenge, they come in 4 milligram and 2 milligram uh, strengths, and I almost always use the 4 milligram strength. I rarely worry about overdosing people on nicotine replacement, and I worry a lot about underdosing them. The Mayo Clinic and others have done studies using two and three patches at a time in people in the same, at, at the same time in individuals and had very little problem. And we know that standard nicotine replacement only provides a small fraction of the amount of nicotine the person is used to getting. So aim high. Go for four milligrams is, is what I do. Combination nicotine replacement therapy is the most effective. Among all the five types of nicotine replacement therapy, they all double your chances of success, but combination nicotine replacement therapy, patch plus gum or patch plus lozenge, triples your chances of success. So unless there's a reason not to, that's probably what you ought to be doing when you use nicotine replacement therapy. 
Moving on to the third pearl was non-nicotine replacement therapies, bupropion and varenicline. Also great treatments, bupropion doubles the chances of success and varenicline triples the chances of success in quitting smoking. For bupropion, you start this a week before the quit date. The main thing is to screen for seizure disorder. And I don't give it somebody, certainly not if they have an active uh, seizure disorder, but I'm also cautious in somebody who's got a history of seizures that didn't have some obvious cause that's since gone. For varenicline, you also started a week before the uh, quit date. The main side effect with uh, both bupropion and varenicline, from my perspective, is anxiety or irritability. So when I teach about this, main thing I tell them in terms of medications is not to obsess over whether to use A or B, but really to focus on making sure that people use medications, because these all double or or triple your chances of getting the person to quit smoking. And the other one is to use text messaging. Uh, They can sign up at uh, smokefree.gov because text messaging programs, which send messages both before their quit date and after their quit date and help them deal with cravings, those programs also double their chances of success. All right. So in thinking about throwbacks for this episode, we tried to think about topics we have covered with a meaningful connection to cigarette smoking. And what came to mind was Barrett's esophagus. Mm, I actually don't see that connection. Yeah. You know, I didn't at first, but then I cheated and searched. Um, (laughs) In episode 33, Barrett's esophagus, uh, we discussed who to screen. And so I had to remind myself of the guidelines myself. Yeah. So basically, we're screening men with uh, GERD symptoms of greater than five years, plus two additional risk factors. And those risk factors are Caucasian race, age greater than 50, any smoking history, and a family history history of Barrett's esophagus or esophageal adenocarcinoma. Aside from that smoking connection, you know, what I thought was the most interesting about that discussion was how we need to tailor our screening to the highest risk group for Barrett's. Because interestingly, with this disease, you have a pretty high cost screening test, right? An upper endoscopy EGD for a relatively low percentage that transform from Barrett's to adenocarcinoma. Yeah, that's absolutely right. There was that story about the middle-aged fat white guy who brings his wife to the endoscopy suite for her Barrett screening EGD. And based on the likelihood of disease, the person who really should be screened is the driver. (laughs) Actually, I do remember that now. Yes, yeah. All right, guys. So that's a wrap for us. Um, Thank you, everyone, for listening. Deuces. We will see you later. Excellent. Thank you all for listening. Remember to claim your CME credit on the ACP website. It's easy to do. Again, if you are in training, send this episode to an attending or someone else you think could benefit from this means of continuing medical education. And as always, if you enjoyed listening to our show, give us a review on iTunes or whatever podcast app you use. It does help people find us. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. We work really hard on these podcasts, so we'd love to hear from you. You can send us an email at hello at coreimpodcast.com. Let us know what we're doing right, how we can improve. And thank you to our peer reviewers, Drs. Nancy Stewart, Dr. Allison Greco, and Dr. Varen Cole. In terms of our beautiful and very helpful infographic, Dr. Cabo Wang. And last but not least, Harit Shah for his audio editing and putting up with my perfectionism. 
Opinions expressed in this podcast are our own and do not reflect the opinions of any affiliated institutions. Do not use this podcast for medical advice. Instead, see your own healthcare provider for medical care. Yep. Different shoulders, different different parts of the body. I um, hide my patch between my, <laughs> in my armpit. Don't do that. Between my um, cheeks. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership. We're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. 